0: It's October 1931. We're looking through the drawing room window of Cool Park, Lady Gregory's house in County Galway, Ireland. Each evening after dinner, Lady Gregory, folklorist, dramatist and founder of the Abbey Theatre, reads The Way We Live Now to her friend and collaborator, William Butler Yeats. As the poet would say, In the seven woods surrounding the house, the trees are in their autumn beauty. A peat fire burns in the fireplace. The old clock ticks. It is the final autumn of her life. Although suffering early symptoms of the illness that would end her days the following spring, she reads Trollope's novel aloud to her friend, her resonant voice not weakened by age, much as she had been reading Trollope's other novels to the poet for decades past. Why do I begin at Cool Park, the place where Yeats summered for over 20 years and which he celebrated in several of his greatest poems? Well, long before it became for him a scene well set and excellent company, the gathering place for writers of the Irish literary renaissance at the end of the 19th century, it had been one of the great houses that had welcomed the newly arrived Antony Trollope to Ireland over half a century earlier. The 26-year-old Trollope moved to Ireland in 1841 after accepting the position of Deputy Postal Surveyor's Clerk at Banagar in the province of Leinster. He would live and work in Ireland for the next 18 years until his return to suburban London following his appointment as Post Office Surveyor for the Eastern District in 1859. Lady Gregory's late husband, Sir William Gregory, had been a contemporary of Trollope's at Harrow a prestigious private boys' school in North London. T.H.S. Escott, Trollope's first biographer, who had, it's worth noting, personally known novelist later in life, recorded that when Trollope lived in Ireland, Cool Park became his second home. Cool Park was about 40 miles west of Trollope's lodgings in Banagar. According to Escott, the earliest year of Trollope's Irish residence saw him an habitué of the place, and introduced him to the home life, not only of the local magnates, but of the surrounding peasantry. His old schoolfellow, Sir William Gregory, shared with his visitor most of his literary, political, and especially classical tastes. Gregory and Trollope had both kept up a trifle of their Greek, as well as a little more of their Latin. They could cap with each other quotations from Virgil or Horace, or the more familiar passages of lesser-known authors. Gregory was two years younger than Trollope. In 1842, at the age of only 25, he had become a Conservative Member of Parliament for Dublin. He quickly became a favourite of Sir Robert Peel, the Prime Minister, who groomed Gregory for high political office. Some critics have plausibly identified Gregory as the prototype for the character Phineas Finn. In her superb 1992 biography of Trollope, Victoria Glendinning noted that the meteoric rise in English political life of Trollope's eponymous hero, Phineas Finn, is matched by Gregory's experience. In Escott's account, Cool Park was for Trollope a most instructive school for the study of Irish life and character. It was here that the novelist found himself in a hotbed of social varieties and in the heart of a district literally overflowing with the local colour, incidents, and personages enriching his earliest novels. Glendinning is more expansive and makes larger claims for this formative period of Trollope's life. She writes, As Gregory's guest at Cool, the assistant surveyor, listened to the social and political gossip and did not forget it. He heard stories about the doings and personalities of famous men and of people in public life, long before he ever met such people himself. It was the best possible fodder for a novelist. It is the scrap of a story, the half-understood scandal, the suggestive reference from someone in the know that fuels the imagination. It was the politics and the sexual scandals of the 1840s, when he knew almost no one, which were to be the starting points for his fiction long after he had left Ireland. In 1847, when Trollope published his first novel, The MacDermots of Ballycloran, Sir William Gregory hailed it as the best Irish story that has appeared in something like half a century. His second novel, The Kellys and the O'Kellys, published the following year, is, according to the historian Roy Foster, an accurate and thoughtful observation of Irish conditions just before the famine. But it is also a celebration of the complexities of Irish social relations, at once, offhand and sophisticated. The stereotypes, he says, are never stereotypical. Trollope wrote against the grain of most English writing of his era in eschewing the stage Irishman so often caricatured in the pages of the popular magazine Punch. As long ago as 1927, the bibliographer and critic Michael Sadler observed, Ireland produced the man, but it was left to England to inspire the novelist it can be plausibly argued that this formulation should be turned on its head, and assert that England produced the man, but Ireland inspired the novelist. This is especially true of Trollope's early novelistic career. His writing life began in Ireland. We know the precise date because Trollope recorded it in his travel diary. On September 13, 1843, he wrote, Began my first novel, Five of his novels are set mainly in Ireland. Two of his Palliser novels feature the Irish character Phineas Finn, and the novels themselves bear the protagonist's name. Trollope's final, unfinished novel, The Leaguers*, is also set in Ireland, and reflects his growing dismay at the spectacle of, imp- of increasing political agitation and acts of terrorism that were being financed from America. Roy Foster has argued persuasively that Trollope's qualities of perception make him the best Irish novelist of mid-century. Victoria Glendinning pointed out that the author actually acquired his typical English mode of address and behaviour in Ireland, and that his appetite for Ireland remained omnivorous. In his autobiography, Trollope said that, when I meet an Irishman abroad, I always recognise him more of a kinsman than I do an Englishman. And as the biographer Richard Mullen observed, Ireland played a larger role in Trollope's writing than it did in that of any other major Victorian novelist, and that all the principal strands of his life were formed in Ireland. It's also in Ireland, of course, where uh, Trollope took up his favorite hobby, which was riding to hounds, uh, something he did right up until his 60s. For Trollope, relocation from London to Leinster Giving up the banks of the River Thames for the banks of the Shannon provided not only a means of escape but also an opportunity for personal reformation. As a young man, he had been miserable in London, afflicted by personal troubles. Poor performance in his post office job led to threats of dismissal, and his salary was sometimes docked. Rather like his father, he lived in a recurrent cycle of debt. This is perhaps why the subject of indebtedness looms so large in his fiction. As a critic for the Saturday Review remarked in 1865, no other novelist has made the various worries about money so prominent a feature of his stories. Recall, for instance, how many impecunious aristocrats make up the membership of the Bear Garden. But, as Trollope reflected in his autobiography, from the day on which I set foot in Ireland... All these evils went away from me. Trollope was perfectly candid about the reasons for the unhappiness of his childhood and youth. In his posthumously published autobiography, he wrote about the consequences of his father's impoverishment, which meant that Trollope attended boarding school as a day student, walking the 12 miles to and from Harrow School each day. He lived not in genteel poverty, but in squalor. On his father's failing farm. The usual school fees were largely waived in his case, which led to him either being teased mercilessly or treated as a pariah by the other students. Trollope described what he called the disgrace of my school days in the first chapter of his autobiography, and also recorded that I feel convinced in my mind that I've been flogged oftener than any human alive. It should be said that his elder brother, Tom, Thomas, uh, was usually one of the people administering the floggings. When he was 12 years old, his mother and three of his siblings moved to the United States. During the four years that she remained abroad, the young Anthony Trollope lived alone with his father and was subjected to his violent rages and depressions. One of the most disturbing parts of Trollope's autobiography Records how he would occasionally ponder suicide, asking himself as a child whether I could not find my way up to the top of that college tower and from thence put an end to everything. All this misery and trauma is corroborated by Sir William Gregory, who recalled in his own autobiography that as a schoolboy, Trollope was, without exception, the most slovenly and dirty boy I ever met. He was not only slovenly in person and dress, but his work was equally dirty. His exercises were a mass of blots and smudges. These peculiarities created a great prejudice against him, and the poor fellow was generally avoided. To make matters even worse, Gregory noted that Trollope gave no sign of promise whatsoever, was always in the lowest part of the form, and was regarded by masters and boys as an incorrigible dunce. Gregory, of course, later came to abjure his schoolboy distaste for Trollope, and as I said earlier, extended much hospitality to his unfortunate schoolmate after his arrival in Ireland. All of this, of course, raises the question, how did Trollope overcome his personal misfortunes and such an unpromising and at times wretched start to life? Well, he was fortunate in one regard. He had an an inspiring example, his mother. Although her sojourn in the United States had been an utter failure from the commercial point of view, she returned with a fund of material, most of it in the form of offended British sensibilities. and This enabled her to write her first book, Domestic Manners of the Americans. The publication of this book, in 1832, gave the family a much-needed injection of cash. The critic, Elizabeth Hardwick, wrote that domestic manners may be said to have squeezed the American lemon very profitably. Her book is a masterpiece of novelistic scenes, dialogues, and dramatic conflict between herself and her subject. Mrs. Trollope, with her intrepid talents, her great ambition and need, in Hardwick's view, transformed her chagrin and her frizzled nerves into a classic. As an aside, it's worth mentioning that it was the resounding success of this book which influenced Charles Dickens' decision to visit and write about America a decade later. Trollope devoted the whole of the second chapter of his autobiography to an account of his mother, Frances. As the scholar Peter Edwards has pointed out, Frances Trollope is the obvious model the impressively forthright, strong-minded women who dominate his fiction. But it is clear that Trollope did not rate his mother's books highly, and some critics have argued that there is more than a trace of the ambitious and determined Frances Trollope in the character of Lady Matilda Carberry. In The Way We Live Now, Lady Carberry is described in this way. She could write after a glib, commonplace, sprightly fashion and had already acquired the knack of spreading all she knew very thin, so that it might cover a vast surface. She had no ambition to write a good book, but was painfully anxious to write a book that critics should say was good. At the outset of the novel, we find Lady Carberry writing... Uh, self-promoting letters to solicit positive reviews for her new book *Criminal Queens*, which presents history as a series of lucid—sorry, uh, a series of lurid anecdotes. Um, one of my laugh-out-loud uh, favorite uh, comments about <laughs> Lady Carberry's writing career is this: She had taken to the, nov- to the she had taken to the writing of a novel because Mister Loiter had told her that, upon the whole, novels did better than anything else she would have written a volume of sermons on the same encouragement and have gone about the work exactly after the same fashion. But laughter aside, Trollope's mother was an heroic figure, Herculean in her literary labours. She did not begin writing until she was 52 years old. And as Trollope tells us in his autobiography, continued writing up to 1856 when she was 76 years old, and had, at that time, produced 114 volumes. The fact that Trollope records the number of volumes so exactly reveals a certain amount of pride, as well as professional competitiveness. In total, she published 35 novels, all three-deckers, five travel books, uh, which were published in two volumes each. Frances Trollope was able to achieve her extraordinary output by iron self-discipline. From day to day, we are told, of Lady Carberry, with all her cares heavy upon her, she had sat at her work with a firm resolve that so many lines should always be forthcoming. Let the difficulty of making them be what it might. In this way, the character is cut from the same cloth as his maternal exemplar. As Trollope records in his autobiography of his mother, she was at her table at four in the morning, and had finished her work before the world had begun to be aroused. In this case, Necessity was very much the mother of invention. She was responsible at that time for the care of her husband, one of her sons, and her daughter, who were all terminally ill with tuberculosis. In his autobiography, Trollope described the scene in terms that set up a comparison with his own later writing career. He said, The doctor's vials and the ink bottle held equal places in my mother's rooms. I have written many novels under many circumstances, but I doubt much whether I could write one when my whole heart was by the bedside of a dying son. Her power of dividing herself into two parts, and keeping her intellect by itself clear from the troubles of the world, and fit for the duty it had to do, I never saw equal to I do not think that the writing of a novel is the most difficult task which a man may be called upon to do, but it is a task that may be supposed to demand a spirit fairly at ease. The work of doing it with a troubled spirit killed Sir Walter Scott. My mother went through it unscathed in strength, though she performed all the work of day nurse and night nurse to the sick household, for there were soon three of them dying. By the time Trollope took up his position at the post office in 1834, his mother was living in Bruges, whence his father had fled to avoid imprisonment for debt. There, pathetically, his mother would, as he says, would sit up night after night, nursing the dying ones and writing novels the while, so that there might be a decent room for them to die under. We will see in a moment how his mother's working habit shaped Trollope's own. As Victoria Glendinning observed, as Frances Trollope ploughed ahead in her career, her son learned much about the business side of authorship long before he himself became an author. When he had completed his first novel, he entrusted the manuscript to his mother and asked her to place it with a publisher, which she was successful in doing. By that time, the summer of 1845, she had become a well-established and popular author. This might be why, when Thomas Newby published Anthony's novel two years later, he left off his first name, perhaps hoping that the reading public <laughs> would assume the author to be Francis Trollope rather than her completely unknown son. Oops. The novel was a flop, and the reviewer for the Athenaeum suggested that Anthony Trollope change his name to avoid an ine- inevitable comparison to his mother. For her part... She placed his second novel, which he began to write characteristically shortly after completing his first, with her own publisher. Aside from his mother's assistance in launching his literary career, as well as the compelling example of her sheer determination, what other advantages did Anthony Trollope have? Well, he had a densely structured society to dramatise. He had, close to hand, most of the things that Henry James pointed out were unavailable to Nathaniel Hawthorne as an American author when he first set out to write. James famously enumerated what these items of high civilization were in his essay on Hawthorne, and it is interesting to see how many of these became, as it were, Trollope's stock in trade. James argued that it takes so many things, it takes such an accumulation of history and custom, such a complexity of manners and types to form a fund of suggestion, for a novelist, this is James's list of the absent things in American life. No state in the European sense of the word, and barely a specific national name. No sovereign, no court, no personal loyalty, no aristocracy, no church, no clergy, no army, no diplomatic service, no country gentleman, no palaces, no castles, nor manors nor old country houses, nor parsonages, nor thatched cottages, nor ivied ruins. No cathedrals, nor abbeys, nor little Norman churches, no great universities, nor public schools, no Oxford, nor Eton, nor Harrow. No literature, no novels, no museums, no pictures, no political society, no sporting class, no Epsom, nor Ascot. When I read this list to one of my nine-year-old sons, he sighed and said, that's a lot of things. (laughs) Unlike Hawthorne, Trollope could and did imaginatively possess most, if not all, of these. And we can, I think, instantly recognize how many of these themes and topics um, in this list became Trollope's very own and how serviceable they were for his fiction. Trollope's approach to writing was thoroughly pragmatic, as had been his mother's. She once admitted that her characters came directly from her own experience, uh, but said that I always pulp my acquaintances before serving them up. You would never recognise a pig in a sausage. There is good reason to believe that her son also drew drew some of his characters from life, though he vehemently denied ever doing so. Nevertheless. There are numerous characters in his fiction who have identifiable parallels, and it is Trollope's realism, the astonishing range and depth of his psychological portraiture, which he brought to ordinary people, as Roy Foster said, that makes his work so readable, so enjoyable. Virginia Woolf, another fan of Trollope, uh, said that readers believe in Trollope's characters as we do in the reality of our weekly bills, It's Trollope's workmanlike attitude to fiction writing that led Henry James, who regarded novels as works of art with a capital A, to be so sniffy about Anthony Trollope's achievement. As the critic John Bailey observed, James, who revered Balzac, expressed a fearful admiration for Trollope, like a visitor at the zoo, admiring the carnivore's appetite. If James is the epitome of the self-conscious artist, Trollope is his opposite, the unselfconscious artisan. The younger American novelist considered Trollope's autobiography one of the most curious and amazing books in all literature because of its matter-of-fact approach to the whole business of writing fiction. Every morning, Trollope's Irish servant, Barney, woke him with a cup of coffee at 5 a.m., Trollope paid Barney five pounds a year extra for the duty, and he was at his desk by 5.30 a.m., sometimes with coffee still in hand, as we can tell from the lower portion of this manuscript. Trollope wrote that, I do not know that I ought not to feel that I owe more to Barney than to anyone else for the success I have had. I think that's a really good instance of Trollope's generosity of spirit right there. Trollope wrote for three hours a day, writing 250 words every 15 minutes, and he kept his watch in front of him as he did so. His daily output was a more than respectable 3,000 words. Then he went off to do his day job at the post office. Trollope believed that, quoting again from his autobiography, that three hours a day will produce as much as a man ought to write. But then he should so have trained himself that he shall be able to work continuously during those three hours. So have tutored his mind that it shall not be necessary for him to sit nibbling his pen and gazing at the wall before him till he he shall have found the words with which he wants to express his ideas. Henry James and Trollope were once fellow passengers on the Bothnia, sailing from New York to Liverpool in October 1875. In his essay, Impartial Portraits, James marveled at how Trollope drove his pen as steadily on the tumbling ocean as in Montague Square. And as his voyages were many, it was his practice before sailing to come down to the ship and confer with the carpenter, who was instructed to rig up a rough writing table in his small sea chamber. One can imagine James's distaste when he read the opening of chapter 7 of Trollope's autobiography, where Trollope writes... As I journeyed across France to Marseille and made thence a terribly rough journey to Alexandria, I wrote my allotted number of pages every day. On this occasion, more than once, I left my paper on the cabin table, rushing away to be sick in the privacy of my stateroom. It was February, and the weather was miserable, but I still did my work. In case you're wondering, he was writing Dr Thorne during that voyage. Now, I've never experienced seasickness, but those who have suffered its woes tell me that all you want to do is curl up and die. Trollope's composure and nonchalance are astonishing, and his unrivaled work ethic must have, been, must have generated some professional envy. And this may be what led Henry James to conclude that Trollope wrote by a mechanical process, and that he abused his gift, overworked it, rode his horse too hard. Trollope did not believe in waiting for inspiration from the muse. The very notion of a muse was alien to his conception of the writer's task. He was disdainful of those who think that the man who works with his imagination should allow himself to wait till inspiration moves him. When I have heard such doctrine preached, I have hardly been able to repress my to, suppress, to repress my scorn. To me, it would be not to me it would not be more absurd. "'if the shoemaker were to wait for inspiration, "'or the tallow-chandler for the divine moment of melting.' "'I turn now to the original manuscript, "'that divine moment when ink first makes contact with the page. "'Trollope began writing The Way We Live Now on May 1st, 1873, "'and by the end of that month had written the first 15 chapters.' He put it aside during June in order to write a short novel titled Harry Heathcote of Gangoyle, a tale of Australian bush life. And having knocked that novel off in a month, he returned to the way we live now on July 3rd. He finished it on December 22nd and calculated that in total it had taken him 29 weeks to write rather than the 32 or 34 weeks that he had timed the novel uh, would take him. This is the manuscript bound in red morocco leather by Revere and Son, with an ornately gold-tooled spine, which is now held at the Morgan Library Museum. The Morgan acquired this manuscript in 1977 from the Chicago rare book dealers Francis Hamill and Marjorie Barker. It cost the equivalent in today's money of a quarter of a million dollars. It's worth a lot more today. The manuscript had come up for auction at Chicago's Hansel Galleries in September 1973 as part of the library of David Gage Joyce, a Chicago lumber magnate. He had probably acquired the manuscript in the early part of the 20th century. My guess would be sometime in the 1920s. Joyce died in 1937, but his daughter kept his father, her father's library intact for nearly 40 years until her heirs decided to sell. This auction, described as the greatest sale of autographed letters and manuscripts within memory, was important because it set what were then new record prices for literary and historical manuscripts. As an aside, I should tell you that the manuscript of Carmen Doyle's novel, The Sign of Four, sold for more than Trollope's The Way We Live Now. The sale was also noticeable because it realized the highest price ever paid up until that time for a George Washington letter. Here's a photograph of the manuscript lying open, ready for display. I recall the first time I ever lifted this manuscript off its shelf at Morgan, five years ago, and took the volume out of its box. It was the first time that I had ever examined it in preparation for a treasures exhibition in Mr. Morgan's library. And I remember how impressed I was by its physical size. It weighs over 12 pounds. It's 1,212 pages long and runs more than 380,000 words. I must confess that it's rather thrilling to hold Trollope's longest novel in your hands. This is the title page of the manuscript added by Trollope after its publication in monthly parts. And this is the first page of the novel. The top left shows the numbering system that Trollope used throughout. Incidentally, he went back to add chapter titles after the novel was completed, and this is discernible by the darker ink that he used. You can see there, at the top, the name Mrs. Hurtle, which is the title of that chapter. Um, it's quite noticeably darker than the rest of the text, because you know, he wrote that much later. The manuscript is revealing in various ways. For instance, Mrs. Winifred Hurtle, one of the novel's most memorable characters, appears to have originally been something of an afterthought. The first mention of her at the end of chapter six appears as a late insertion, added after Trollope had concluded the chapter with his customary horizontal pen flourish or pen stroke. This is a close-up view of that insertion. You can see there that he finished the chapter with the pen stroke and then goes back and zigzag lines it out to delete it and then... um, Continued the paragraph uh, below. You know, just follows on and then writes below his cancelled outline and then at the end puts his stroke um, back in. I've I've since um, looking at the manuscript of the way we live now. Looked at the five Trollope manuscripts that are at, that are at the New York Public Library, and this was a characteristic of Trollope. After at the end of every chapter of all of those other five novels, he um, uses this pen stroke just to signal morning's work is done. I suppose. But once Mrs. Hurtle was introduced, however, she took on a life of her own. She was too good an invention for the author not to expand her role in the narrative to that of a principal character. As the New York Times commentator David Brooks pointed out, Trollope clearly loves her because he cannot take her off the stage. Trollope's original outline and notes for the novel are at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. They confirm that Mrs. Hurtle was not part of Trollope's original conception, She's is introduced in these notes, which sketch out the novel's dramatist personae um, at the left uh, side of Paul Montague's character outline. Of Montague, Trollope writes in those notes, gets into some scrapes which must be devised. And clearly, Trollope was going to devise these scrapes sort of, you know, on the fly, sort of writing by the seat of his pants, because Trollope wrote, you know, with characters first and foremost, and plot sort of second or, or third... Uh, in line, as it were. Um, so Mrs. Hertel appears to have been created to provide those scrapes, and you know, and uh, so she does. As the scholar John Sutherland has noted, reading the manuscript is somewhat frustrating for anyone hoping to make startling discoveries. The manuscript conforms to the author's long-established practice. He wrote this novel, as those before it, on both sides of quarto size bifolium sheets, in his fluent and regular hand. He usually managed to write 10 pages every morning, consistently writing 28 to 31 lines per page and accumulating 250 words on each page. As I mentioned before, this regularity and consistency was crucial to Trollope because it enabled him to you know, make sure he was writing enough each day to meet his weekly, monthly, and annual you know, figures. Um... His manuscripts in comparison to those of other authors look like fair copy rather than first draft but as with dickens first draft was the only draft as the manuscript was sent to the printer in this form we know this because the manuscript has among other telltale signs that it went through the printing house the cast-off marks the casting-off marks of the printer and the names of the compositors written in pencil now, here's a manuscript of Dickens's late novel, Our Mutual Friend, so that you can see the contrast between the mass of crossing out and interlineal revision that is characteristic of almost every page of a Dickens manuscript. And here's a page of the manuscript of Jane Austen's unfinished novel, The Watsons, as uh, there, there's only... Um, 12 pages of this at Morgan, I should say. Um, the rest of it is at the Bodleian Library. Um, they acquired it in 2011, um, much to my severe dismay, since I was bidding against them uh, that morning, um, in hopes that we'd get the rest of this manuscript to come to the Morgan. Um, so as, as the scholar Nicholas Shrimpton said, Trollope was the Victorian novelist who worked most consciously and effectively in the tradition of Jane Austen. So I thought it would be useful to see one of her manuscripts in the way in which a first draft um, has bears a, a great deal of you know changes of mind and revisions and deletions. Um, but Trollope's manuscripts couldn't be more different than Austen's or Dickens'. There are really no major revisions in the manuscript of the way we live now. Trollope himself sheds light on the reason for the relatively clean text in his autobiography, where he wrote that, "'A man can throw onto his paper the exact feeling,' which his mind is impressed at the moment, with which his mind is impressed at the moment. A rough copy, or that which is called a draft, is written in order that it may be touched and altered and put on stilts. The waste of time, moreover, in such an operation is terrible. If a man knows his craft with his pen, he will have learned to write without the necessity of changing his words or the form of his sentences I dare say that Trollope would have actually had the temerity to say that to Jane Austen and Dickens if he'd ever discussed this with them. But nevertheless, there are some interesting revisions that show the author's change of direction. For example, the manuscript shows that Trollope first considered keeping Melmott alive to face trial. In the manuscript, he does not die, but is found asleep. And this is the part of the manuscript where um, the death of Melmott occurs. After Malwot retires to his study to drink, the chapter originally ended, and I'll read this for you. He was habitually left there at night, and the servant, as usual, went to his bed. But at nine o'clock on the following morning, the maid servant found him asleep. Hmm. But Trollope later crossed out asleep, and you can see it there, and replaced it with dead, and then squeezed in this continuation. That you all know from the book. Drunk as he had been, more drunk as he probably became during the night, still he was able to deliver himself from the indignities and penalties to which the law might have subjected him by a dose of prussic acid. Other marks on the pages of the manuscript, features such as ink blots and spills, suggest that although Trollope had an extremely orderly mind, his pages are sometimes reminiscent of the mass of blots and smudges that Sir William Gregory recalled from Trollope's Schoolboy Exercises. Normally, I would attribute smudges and residual inky finger marks to the printers who handled the manuscript, but the inks thing that runs along the top of this page uh, suggests to me that this fingerprint may be Trollope's own, making this an extremely rare example of its kind. Trollope was at the height of his earning power and received 3,000 pounds for the copyright of The Way We Live Now. This is roughly equivalent to about $320,000 in today's money. It was first published by Chapman and Hall in 20 monthly parts between February 1874 and September 1875. Serial publication, as this is known, was rather outmoded by that time. Here is the first edition of the novel, as issued in its monthly parts. Each copy cost one shilling, which made uh, made it a reasonably affordable uh, item for a large readership. Each part was made up of thirty two pages and included two full plate illustrations. Uh, at the end of the uh, monthly part issue, it was released in a two volume edition. And for his part, Trollope received one hundred and fifty pounds each time one of these monthly issues appeared. So he was paid over the course of twenty months. The cover of each monthly part uh, of each monthly issue. Looks like this and encapsulates what we might call the Plutocrat's progress. Trollope commissioned this design for the cover, which features uh, vignettes of Melmot's rise and fall within these fat money bags and uh, at the top and the three emptier money bags at the bottom of the frame. Now, Melmot appears top center, and the vignettes from left to right show Melmot talking with Fisker and a meeting with the board of directors there on the right. The next vignette shows Melmot bowing to the Emperor of China, and his tense meeting with Paul Montague. The left and right side panels show the great imperial banquet, and Melmot electioneering in Covent Garden. While the upper part of the design represents thematic images of inflation, the lower part represents deflation. The strings of the money bags are unloosed as we see Melmot's life literally unraveling. On the left, we see Melmot tumbling drunkenly in the House of Commons. And on the right side, he berates Marie Melmot, who is shown in tears with Mrs. Melmot standing powerless alongside. The central collapsed money bag at the bottom of the frame shows Melmot lying dead after ingesting prussic acid. In the center of it all, the figure of Father Time sits atop the globe averting his eyes, or perhaps even weeping at all he sees around him. Now I'm going to talk a little about the reception of the novel. Uh, The contemporary critical reception of the way we live now was mostly negative, sometimes harshly so. The Spectator, the Athenaeum, the Examiner, the Saturday Review, and the Westminster all reviewed it poorly, complaining that the novel was carelessly constructed and carelessly written, and that its characters were either uninteresting or detestable, as one critic called them. Apart from a single laudatory review in the Times, whose editorial position aligned with the novel's satire, the critics of Trollope's Day appear to have found The Way We Live Now to be a bitter pill to swallow. This almost certainly affected sales. John Sutherland has ably demonstrated that The Way We Live Now cannot be considered a commercial success by the standards of its day. Initial sales of the novel in the 1870s and 1880s were not high, and in the first two decades of the 20th century, sales of the book appeared to have dwindled to almost nothing. The critical fortunes of the novel underwent a sea change with the advent of Michael Sadler's 1927 commentary on Trollope's work. Sadler radically re-evaluated the way we live now, declaring this long and trenchant satire to be of supreme importance elevating its stature to perhaps the greatest novel Trollope ever wrote. This was the beginning of the novel's rehabilitation. Although Adam Gottnick somewhat dismisses the way we live now as the Trollope novel for people who don't like Trollope novels, most recent critics have recognized its greatness. The historian David Canadine, in his latest book, Victoria's Century, commends the manner in which Trollope brilliantly exposed, brilliantly, brilliantly explored and exposed late Victorian anxieties about the corrupting power of plutocracy, and hails it as the, his greatest and angriest novel. Focusing on, on the novel's relentless exposure of 19th century venality, the novelist John Lanchester commented that the anger and sense of moral crisis Trollope felt are what give the way now it's special energy it's untrollop like rawness and insistence he drew on his outrage to create literature's greatest portrait of a financial scandal with a corrupt financier at its heart and magnificently ruthless bombast and sorry with a corrupt financier at its heart the magnificently ruthless bombastic August, augustus Melmot looking at the novels relevance in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, Alex Preston wrote, "Anthony Trollope's The Way We Live Now remains the supreme example of the state of the nation novel a sprawling tour de force with a huge cast of characters and a labyrinthine plot. The shifting viewpoints, keen engagement with contemporary themes and use of London as a microcosm, this is the model upon which a number of important recent novels have drawn. I'm going to talk in the last part of my lecture about Dickens and Trollope. I've mentioned him several times, and so I thought since I spoke about Dickens five years ago, it might be good to talk about both of them, their similarities and differences. Roy Foster recognized that in its mordant way, the way we live now was a more political novel than most of Trollope's other overtly political fiction and he regards it as a masterpiece of Dickensian proportions. The comparison with Dickens invites us to consider the two novelists in more detail. In an essay in the New York Review of Books, V.S. Pritchett wrote that Trollope loathed Dickens, the man. Now, in my research for this lecture, I could find only limited evidence to support this rather strong statement. Um, I suspect that Trollope was too kind-hearted and too generous a spirit to really loathe anybody. At least that's what most of his contemporaries uh, said of him. The scallop Andrew Sanders' assessment is more even-handed and, I believe, more accurate. He said, Trollope's response both to Dickens the novelist and to Dickens the man was at best ambiguous, at worst, antipathetic. The two men were acquainted, both professionally and personally, but scarcely intimate. Trollope and Dickens had numerous friends in common, the major figure being Thackeray, whom Trollope admired and loved. He thought Thackeray's novel Henry Esmond the greatest of all English novels and regarded him as one of the most tender hearted human beings I ever knew. Dickens's illustrator, John Leach, was a common friend of Dickens, Thackeray, and Trollope. Similarly, Wilkie Collins, intimate friend and collaborator of Dickens, was also on good terms with Trollope. We are in Collins's debt for one of the most vivid descriptions of Trollope's immeasurable energies. Describing his first encounter with Trollope's blustering manner at one literary dinner, Collins recorded that he was an incarnate gale of wind. He blew off my hat. He turned my umbrella inside out. Yet Collins grew to like him and considered him as good and staunch a friend as ever lived. Another professional acquaintance of Dickens and Trollope, the journalist George Augustus Sala, described how the 45 year old Trollope conducted himself at a dinner organized by the great publisher George Smith. Anthony Trollope was very much to the fore, contradicting everybody, afterwards saying kind things to everybody, and occasionally going to sleep on sofas and chairs, or leaning against the sideboards and "'even somnolent while standing erect on the hearthrug. "'I never knew a man who could take so many spells "'at forty winks at unexpected moments "'and then turn up quite wakeful, alert and pugnacious "'as the author of Barchester Towers, "'who had nothing of the bear but his skin, "'but whose ursine envelope was assuredly "'of the most grisly texture.' Trollope, Trollope and Dickens were, were party people, both of them gregarious, highly social, and intensely playful creatures. My favourite anecdote concerning Trollope's exuberant, boisterous nature is an account of his first attempt at playing golf in the summer of 1868 at no less Augusta Course than St. Andrew's in Scotland. Victoria Glendinning describes how affecting to faint with grief at a particularly bad shot He crashed down on the green, forgetting he had a golf ball in his pocket, and started up with a yell of agony quite unfeigned. She adds, golf is a decorous game. His voice was heard all over the links. Now for all Dickens' attention-seeking hijinks, one can't quite imagine him taking pratfalls at St. Andrews. To continue the literary equivalent of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, the closest connection between the two novelists was Trollope's elder brother, Thomas Adolphus, who was also a prolific author in the family tradition. One could almost say the family business. Tom wrote 14 novels, seven historical works, mostly focused on uh, Italian history, five travel books. Four books on Italian politics, three volumes of short stories, an autobiography, and a stream of articles. He said that he wrote fiction for money, but history for joy, and seems to have been able to write even more rapidly than his younger brother, perhaps because he didn't have a day job. He wrote a novel titled Beppo the Convict in 23 days, largely to defray the expenses of his wife's illness. She was dying of consumption at the time. Tom Trollope and Charles Dickens were intimate friends. In 1858, Dickens introduced Fanny Turnham, a member of the Turnham acting family, to the elderly Francis Trollope, who lived with Tom at the Villino Trollope in Florence. Fanny later became the piano teacher and subsequently governess of Tom's daughter Beatrice, or Bice, as the 12-year-old child was known. A year after the death of Tom's wife in 1865, he married Fanny Turnham. When Tom told his brother, Anthony, the news of his engagement, Anthony said, Yes, of course, I knew you would. Those of you who know Dickens's biography will also know that Fanny Turnham was the sister of Dickens' mistress, Ellen Turnham. So, really quite close, I think you'll see. As a young man, Anthony Trollope read Dickens's fiction voraciously. As they appeared in monthly parts, Trollope read sketches by Boz and the Pickwick Papers. His favorite novel was Oliver Twist. Several of Trollope's characters also read Dickens's work. Recall Bishop Proudie in Barchester Towers, reading the final installment of, of Little Dorrit in his wife's uh, sitting room with a glass of hot Negus beside him. Trollope often heightened the realism of contemporary life in his fiction by depicting his characters reading the work of the leading novelists of the day. Little Dorrit was published in monthly parts between December 1855 and 1857. In truth, Trollope was infuriated by Dickens's depiction of the civil service as the circumlocution office in Little Dorrit, and wrote an article debunking it. According to V. S. Pritchett, and this is a view widely shared by biographers and critics, Trollope was a man of liberal mind crossed by strong conservative feeling, whereas Dickens, to Trollope's mind, was a radical at heart. That's what Trollope said of Dickens, a radical at heart. Dickens's radicalism is abundantly evident in, the, in Little Dorrit's um, satire of the civil service and of parliamentary government. Pritchett implicitly compared the styles of Dickens and Trollope when he wrote that the latter, when he wrote of the latter, Trollope, that he never fell into exaggeration, nor rose to it, nor indeed rose to it, and that's one of the key differences I think between Trollope and Dickens. Trollope would probably have found himself in agreement with George Bernard Shaw's assessment of Little Dorrit. Famously, Shaw called it a more seditious book than Das Kapital. Trollope claimed not to have read Little Dorrit until 1878, several years after he published The Way We Live Now. At least, that is what he told his first biographer, T.H.S. Escott. But this seems improbable, given that he wrote a critique of the novel that he intended to publish in the Athenaeum, and name-checked it in Barchester Towers, published in May 1857. So it's much more likely that Trollope was, like Bishop Proudie, reading the novel as it appeared in monthly installments. Little Dorrit and The Way We Live Now have elements in common, of course. The novels share an intense preoccupation with the political and social health of Britain, and both depict a corrupt financier masquerading as a grand speculator. Both novels satirise the willingness of people to invest in their suspect financial enterprises. Dickens's financier, Mr. Myrtle, is a reserved man, in contrast to Trollope's Larger Than Life Melmott. The critic Barry Weller has said that Melmott, in terms of his personal extravagance and flamboyance, is the most Dickensian character in Trollope's novels. Like Myrtle, Melmott is courted and flattered by society. Both men give lavish dinners and entertainments as a way to establish and maintain public confidence in themselves and their grand financial projects. We are told of Myrtle that... He was immensely rich, a man of prodigious enterprise, a Midas, who turned all he touched to gold. He was in everything good, from banking to building. He was in Parliament, of course. He was in the city, necessarily. He was chairman of this, trustee of that, president of the other. When their schemes founder and implode, both Myrtle and Melmoth commit suicide. In fairness to Trollope, the superficial similarities between Myrtle and Melmott may be due, in large part, to both novelists drawing upon actual people and events. Dickens based his characters to some extent, on the careers of George Hudson, the so-called Railway King, whose financial empire collapsed in 1849, and John Sadler, a former member of Parliament, who poisoned himself in 1856 when his fraudulent financial practices were about to be exposed. Another real life model is the Frenchman Charles Lefebvre, who launched an interoceanic railway scheme. Lefebvre's career resembles Melmot's in many in, in some details. Biographer Richard Mullen, however, favours Albert Gottheimer, later known as Albert Grant. Like Melmot, he acquired a very grand house and at one point owned London's Leicester Square. In his glittering career, he raised 24 million pounds in capital Only to eventually lose £20 million of it. Melmot's origins might also lie a bit closer to home. After Trollope's father in law, Edward Heseltine, retired as manager of a bank in Rotherham, Yorkshire, his successor discovered that he'd been cooking the books for over 20 years. Mr. Heseltine eventually fled to France and died there in 1855. Trollope was aware of the scandal and may well have come to learn that his father-in-law had used the money to speculate on railway shares and had suffered severe losses with the demise of George Hudson's financial empire in 1859. Sorry, 1849. Dickens presents the character of Myrtle in what the critic John Kerry describes as a few bare but masterly strokes. The reader is told that Mr. Myrtle is the man of his time, the name of Myrtle, is the name of the age. But Myrtle is a cipher, an intriguing blank. This contrasts with the enormous amount of information that Trollope gives us about Melmot. Dickens tells us little about uh, Myrtle's inner tumult, and it is clear that he despises the character. But Trollope, who is always deeply interested in the figure of the outsider in his fiction, and is often at his best while writing about or when writing about outsiders, Cannot entirely set aside his human sympathy and compassion, even for the swindler Melmot. The critic Frank Commode has argued that there is, there is in some sense, there is some sense in which Melmot is a scapegoat as well as an intruder, a great man as well as a sordid villain. And this is in, a, and this is apparent at the end of the great banquet for the Emperor of China, when Melmot sits looking out on his own magnificent suite of rooms from the armchair which had been consecrated by the use of an emperor. It's a really, really poignant scene in the novel, I think. But to return to the personal relationship that existed between Trollope and Dickens, a closer friendship between the two novelists may well have been precluded by Trollope's critical attack on what he regarded as Dickens's unrealistic optimism. In The Warden... Dickens is caricatured as Mr. Popular Sentiment, whom the narrator describes as a serial novelist in these terms. Of all reformers, Mr. Sentiment is the most powerful. It is incredible the number of evil practices he has put down. It is feared he will soon lack subjects, and that when he has made working classes comfortable and got bitter beer put into proper-sized pint bottles, there will be nothing left for him to do. Mr. Sentiment is certainly a very powerful man, and perhaps not the less so, that his poor people are so very good, his hard, rich people so very hard, and the genuinely honest so very honest. Perhaps, however, Mr. Sentiment's great attraction is in his second-rate characters. That's pretty harsh criticism of Dickens right there, I think. It would be hard to believe that the narrator is not conveying at least some of Trollope's own views about Dickens' work here. In his obituary of Dickens, published in 1871, Trollope recognised the justice of Dickens' popularity, but returned to his earlier criticism of Dickens's quote, unnatural characters, noting that his novels were deficient in both art, in the choice of words, and nature, in the creation of character. Nevertheless, He admired Dickens' abilities as a novelist and accepted the validity of his public adulation. One might even say adoration. But he did not share in it. When the first volume of John Forster's biography of Dickens appeared in 1872, Trollope's attitude towards Dickens personally seems to have hardened. He told his friend George Eliot, who we should remember was also a friend of Dickens, that the book is distasteful to me Dickens was no hero. He was a powerful, clever, humorous, in many respects wise man, but very ignorant and thick-skinned, who had taught himself to be his own god. Ouch. Dickens' attitude to Trollope, on the other hand, seems to have been much warmer. He told Tom, Trollope's brother, that he regarded his brother as the heartiest and best of fellows. Dickens considered Trollope's decision to stand for Parliament to be inscrutable. But looking on the bright side, he said to Tom, the honester the man, the better for the rest of us. Their views on Parliament were, of course, diametrically opposite. No doubt in large part due to his exposure to politicians during his time as a parliamentary stenographer, Dickens distrusted and despised most politicians, and once referred to the House of Commons as that great dust heap down at Westminster. Trollope, in contrast, devoted a whole chapter of his autobiography to an account of his failed attempt to be elected as Member of Parliament for Beverley in the East Riding of Yorkshire, and declared that, I've always thought that to sit in the British Parliament should be the highest object of ambition to every educated Englishman. One senses that Melmot's that one senses this, sorry, in Melmot's desire to stand for Parliament and become an MP. Dickens and Trollope were both interested in writing about money and its often negative effects on individuals and in society. Nevertheless, neither of them exhibited any reluctance to acknowledge that they wrote for money, and both sought to obtain as much remuneration as possible for their work. It may be no coincidence that both men had improvident fathers. Dickens' father was imprisoned for debt, and Trollope's father fled the country to avoid the same fate. Dickens and Trollope also had some important interests in common. Both men were allied in their campaign for an international copyright agreement and worked assiduously to achieve it. Both novelists were incredibly industrious and prolific, though Trollope takes the prize for the sheer volume of his literary output, given that he published 47 novels to Dickens's 15. And there is also one mysterious, we might even say supernatural, connection between them. An experience they shared here in the United States that stirred these imperturbable Victorian men to rapture. When Dickens visited Niagara Falls in 1842, he had a vision of his late sister-in-law, Mary Hogarth, and concluded that she has been here many times, I doubt not, since her sweet face faded from my earthly sight." That's what Dickens wrote in in, uh, his American Notes. Trollope seems to have undergone a similar spiritual experience at Niagara. At first, he complained at having to put put myself into filthy oilskin dress, hat, coat, and trousers in order that I might be conducted under the falls. But once there, he found himself overwhelmed, as his mother had been when she visited 30 years before him and he was overwhelmed by what Glenn Dinning refers to as an experience of religious intensity that he described in images of sex, death, and infinity. This is all a far cry from Oscar Wilde's response to visiting Niagara Falls several years later. Wilde famously wrote, Niagara will survive any criticism of mine, but I must say, however, that it is the first disappointment in the married life of many Americans who spend their honeymoon there. <laughs> My concluding anecdote concerning Trollope and Dickens presents an image of the two Englishmen together here in the United States. It may have been the last time they ever saw each other. In November 1867, on the eve of Dickens' American reading tour, a great farewell dinner was given in his honour at the Freemasons' Hall in London. Trollope made a speech on that occasion, hailing Dickens as the great chieftain in literature. In April the following year, Trollope arrived in New York on post office business just as Dickens was about to depart on his homeward voyage. Glendinning recounts how Trollope got himself carried between the two ships on a small tender just to say hello to Dickens, who was delighted and amazed at this unexpected rendezvous. This, to me, is a fantastic coincidence worthy of one of Dickens' own plots. It was most heartily done, wrote Dickens to Tom Trollope. He is a perfect cordial to me whenever and wherever I see him as the heartiest and best of fellows. As I said earlier, both men enjoyed eating and drinking, whether it be a convivial dinner party at home or a grand banquet attended by hundreds or even thousands of guests. Dickens and Trollope both enjoyed the comforts of food and drink, and this enjoyment manifests itself in their fiction. It should be no surprise to learn that both built large wine cellars in their homes. They shared a special disapproval of those who made no effort to appreciate the delights of good fellowship. And I hope that we can now adjourn to dinner discussing the way we live now. I think Trollope and Dickens would approve. Thank you very much.